This morning's scripture reading will be from the book of Matthew, chapter 16, verses 13 through 20. Matthew 16, verses 13 through 20. I'll be reading from the New King James Version. When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? So they said, Some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, and others Jeremiah, and, or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that, you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he commanded his disciples that they should tell no one that he was Jesus the Christ. As a soul-stirring landmark separating the two great covenants, God placed the old rugged cross. And it is the focal point of Old Testament prophecy and New Testament preaching. On the cross, the Son of God fulfilled the prophecies of the old and built the church of the new. Because of his unimaginable actions, Paul said he redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is every one that hangeth on a tree. Galatians three, thirteen. Peter paid homage to him by declaring, Who his own self bare our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, being dead to sins, should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes ye were healed. 1 Peter 2.24 The cross was not a thing of beauty. Instead, it was reserved for malefactors, for murderers, and vile men of every kind, and it was associated with infamy. It was then, as it is today, a symbol of shame, suffering, sorrow, and death. And it was to that death Jesus went, having no sin but dying for sinners, to establish His church. But there are thousands of churches in the world. Thousands. Knowing that, how do we successfully bring people into the church He built? How do we go about interesting people in discovering what the Bible says about Jesus and His church? Paul taught Timothy about a form of godliness one people held to. He taught Timothy about a form of godliness but one that was not from God. 2 Timothy 3, 1-5 There are all sorts of those. What can we tell people about the church of Christ? What can we show them about the church that he established with his own blood, Acts 20, 28? What can we tell them that would make it different from all those other churches in the world? Can we talk to them about the family? Can we talk to them about having godly families and placing emphasis on that and 
in spending time together promoting that? Can we tell them about how we're interested in making our communities better? Can we talk about that? Can we tell them how we love Jesus and the Father and that we, how we strive to live our lives in accordance with their plans and not with our own? Well, that's true, isn't it? We can talk about those things. But how is that different from the message that they hear from the world's denominations? It isn't true. Or it isn't different, is it? It's the same message. So what can we tell the world about the Lord's church? There are things that are unique to Christ's church that we read about in the Bible, different from all those other churches that some person somewhere created and established so many hundreds of years ago. This morning we want to discuss the topic, what every person needs to know about the church Jesus built. And within that topic, we can discover some very unique characteristics about the church Christ built. Every person inside and outside of the church that Jesus built needs to know that His members bear the cross. That's our first point. When we speak of the church, we speak of those who comprise the church, for the people are the church. They make up the church, and the church is to walk in a certain way. That's one way we bear the cross. Now, when we talk about the way in which a person walks, we're talking about a way in which that person lives or the standard by which they live. Paul and Peter often called that the conversation of life or the way in which they live. How do we know that? Notice 2 Thessalonians 3 verse 11. Paul told those in Thessalonica, they had heard that there were those who walked among them who were disorderly, who didn't even work but were busybodies. He told the brethren in Rome to mark those who caused divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which they had learned and avoid them. You see, the church is to take up the cross and follow Jesus. We are to walk or to live our conversation in such a way that brings honor and glory to Jesus. To do that, each member is to walk in a certain way. Jesus warned this, Luke 9.23 and he said to them all, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. That's our walk. That's our conversation. That's the standard by which we are to live. That's how we bear our cross. And Peter explained how that happened. Now remember, Peter often called the Christian's life or his walk his conversation. Now let's listen to his exhortation. 1 Peter 1, beginning with verse 13. Wherefore, for, he said, Gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ as obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lusts in your ignorance, but as he which hath called you is holy. So be ye holy in all manner of conversation, because it is written... Be ye holy, for I am holy. You see, Peter speaks to the preparation necessary for compliance to God's will. And that is all part of counting of the cost of becoming a Christian. Luke 14, 25-33, which broadens to include one's activities of action. 
gird up the loins of your mind. That's what he demanded, right? He demands that of all Christians and all who would be a Christian. That means prepare your minds. You see, he's going back to that idea of when you go out to work, those people would gird up their tunics. They wore tunics. They had to take the dress tail. They had to bring it up, gird it around their waist to get it above their knees. They had to prepare themselves to work. They were daily laborers. People still do that in the, in the east of the world today. They'll go out they'll have to gird up their dress tail if they're going to go out and work in the fields. I've seen it in India and in Indonesia. They have to tie it around their waist so they can go out and work in the rice paddy or, or the daily laborers in, in, the, in the fields or wherever they're working. See, that gets in their way. They have to prepare themselves to work. You see, the Christian or those who would be Christians have to prepare their minds to be Christians. Gird up the loins of your minds. Prepare yourselves. Get ready to be a Christian. Bear your cross so they can be children of obedience. You see, that's how one walks in such a way as to bear the cross of Jesus. That's what he's talking about. Now, within the letter, the reader is told what to be and what not to be. They're not to be fashioned or shaped or conformed to the lust or to the desires of their former lives. They're to be changed and said they're to be holy in all manner of living. Right? That's what that preparation is all about. Rather than following the, the attractions and the pursuits by worldly people, like worldly people. Saints are to be godly. They're to follow after things that that are prized by God, Isaiah 66, verse 2, and Matthew 6, 33. Take up that cross. Walk in the way that God would have us to walk. That's what every person needs to know about the church that Jesus built. It is full of cross bearers that walk in the way that God would have them to walk in this life, and they work the works of God. That's another way we bear the cross, right? Have you ever seen people who wear the cross instead of bear the cross? It happens, doesn't it? Have you, ever, have you ever seen that? You see, the New Testament church of the first century was full of cross bearers. Trust me, they didn't wear the cross around their necks. They didn't place a cross on a building. Listen, there's nothing wrong with placing a cross on a church building. There's nothing wrong with that. It's not wrong to have that symbol, Okay? We understand what that symbol represents to us. They didn't place it there because they didn't want the Roman government coming in and stomping down their door. If they placed a cross around their neck, that would be like us placing a, an electric chair around our neck, a small one, right? It was a, that was a, a, a way of, of killing someone. Look, I'm not saying that's wrong, but we have to understand the context in which it would have happened, right? The, the shallow pretense of some religious people, though, can be seen when they wear the cross as an ornament instead of bearing it in their lives. It has to be born in the lives. We see it in a lot of places. We see the cross in a lot of places. Church spires, letterheads, around necks. But here's where we need to see it. We need to see it in the lives of people who claim to be Christians. 
We need to see it in their walk and we need to see it in their work. Here's the peculiar thing about an identifying mark. It only works if it can be identified, right? Have you ever noticed this? Your kid comes home from school or, or someone you meet and, and they say, well, I met so-and-so today. Did you know they're a member of the church? And do you know how pleasantly surprised that we usually are that we have run into someone who is a member of the church? Now think about this for a moment. Isn't that, We are really genuinely surprised, aren't we, that we've run into another member of the church. Let me tell you about a conversation I heard the other day. This happened at my house. Someone comes home. Well, so-and-so, I find out, is a member of the church. Really? He's a member of the church. You know what the next question was? Does he behave like he's a member of the church? Because, see, you have to have the identifying marks, right? You have to have the walk and you have to have the work if you're going to bear the cross. Just because you wear the cross doesn't mean you bear the cross. We must be vigilant in reaching out to those around us and one of the greatest ways we do that is by being identified as a Christian in our daily lives as we interact with folks. The new walk which Paul described to those in Rome is a lifestyle change. We come up out of the water of baptism to walk in newness of life. Do you think those folks in Rome recognized that? Absolutely, they recognized it, right? Christians bear the cross by working and evangelizing areas in which they live. You see, it's a lifestyle change. They want to talk to folks about it. They want to tell people, you know, things have changed for me, and I think it would help you too. I think a lot of folks misunderstand the idea of taking up the cross and bearing it. I believe, and I don't think this is done on purpose, but I think a lot of people misunderstand that bearing the cross means they go to worship every Sunday and on Wednesday. Brethren, that's not bearing the cross. We don't bear the cross when we come in here to worship. Is that this is a time when we can kind of let our guard down a little bit, isn't it? We come together and fellowship with each other. Shouldn't we be able to let our guard down? Notice what bearing the cross is, denying yourself. What are we denying ourselves from when we come to worship? Deny yourself. Take up the cross and follow me. Should we be setting the cross down? Maybe at the door or at the very least beside us in the pew? Bearing the cross is out there where we walk and where we work. I think people misunderstand that sometimes. There's a disconnect somewhere with that line of thinking. We bring the cross with us everywhere we go. But we don't bear the cross when we, when we worship God. It's a very important part of our lives. And we, when we do it, but we do not engage in the aspects which come with bearing the cross when we engage in worship, do we? It's an integral part. We deny self. We die to sins of the past. We rise up and we walk in a new life when we bear the cross. That's a whole other part of our aspect of Christianity that when we worship God, 
Bearing the cross happens out the outside. We sacrifice self. We fulfill the commandments of God. We endure the uncomfortable for the benefit of humanity and spreading the gospel. That's the main part of the of our Christian work when we do that. What every person needs to know about the church of Christ, the church Jesus built, is He expects His members to bear the cross. And He expects His members to boast. Now wait a minute. Boasting's wrong, isn't it? Well, it can be. But it depends about what we boast, right? We bear the cross and we boast about the power of the cross. Paul did that, didn't he? The grave of Moses was wrapped in secrecy. I wonder why. Have you ever thought about why no one ever knew where Moses was buried? Why do you think Israel was never told? They had a little problem, didn't they? Throughout their history, until they went off into captivity for 70 years in Babylon, they worshipped anything that could crawl, walk, or be seen. Right? Until they came back from Babylon. Do you think they might have thrown up a sign and said, Here lies Moses, and they'd been worshipping that spot from, from then on, wouldn't they? Probably. That would have been a good guess. But Moses... His grave was wrapped in secrecy. But when the cross came on the scene, it was set in bold relief, wasn't it? And we don't worship the cross itself. We worship the man who hung on it. But that's what we're supposed to do, right? Paul described the value of the cross. He said, We were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more... Being reconciled, we shall be saved by His life, Romans 5.10. That's the power of which we boast. The power of Christ being laid into the tomb and coming out of that tomb to walk the earth again. The life-saving power of the cross, and that's what everyone needs to know. Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Well, what is the gospel of the Christ? It's the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Christ. That's the good news, right? For it is the power of God and the salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, Romans 1.16. But why is it so powerful? First, we must be able to tell people what the gospel is. It is the good news about what Jesus has accomplished, what He did for humanity that death, that burial, that resurrection. And that is the powerful because it is the propitiation for our sins. That's a big letter. That's a big letter word, isn't it? Propitiation for our sins. That means the proper atonement. That means the justification in the sight of God. Justice for sin. That makes God righteous. How can God allow a sinful people to, be, to stand justified? Because sin has to be punished with death. For the wages of sin is death, Romans 6.23, because of a propitiation. It was paid at the cross. Everyone's sin was paid at the cross. From Adam on down to the last person who ever lives was paid at the cross. And it was an acceptable sacrifice. Let's go back to all these churches in the world. You know there are more than, and I found this out last minute, last night I looked it up because it's changing all the time. I wanted to wait until the last second. More than 45,000, quote, Christian denominations in the world. Not too awfully long ago, it was 40,000. 
Now it's 45,000 Christian denominations in the world. You can look that up on LiveScience.com. Many of them claim that their priests, their pastors, or others in their hierarchy have the ability to forgive a person of their sins. Now that's just not true. That's a false statement. Here's something else every person needs to know about the church Jesus built. Just as it is not possible that, bull, that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sin, Hebrews 10, uh, 4, no person can grant the freedom of sin to anyone other than Christ Jesus. Even if he calls himself Christ's vicar on earth. The only thing capable of forgiving sin is the sacrifice of a perfect Savior. That's a propitiation. The perfect atonement for sin. The sacrifice had to be perfect. The motive had to be perfect. And the salvation is perfect. Now here's the purpose. It was to provide an avenue of justification for those who would accept God's salvation. Paul reminded his readers, Romans 5, 8, but God commendeth His love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. What can we say about the church we read about in the New Testament? What can we reveal to someone to demonstrate the difference between the church that Jesus built and the 45,000 plus other churches who claim to be gods in the world today? Well, one thing every person needs to know about the church Jesus built is its members believe. That's our third and our final point. Its members believe. Well, someone says denominational church members believe. Well, that's true. They do believe. But members of the church Jesus built believe the facts presented in the Bible the way they are presented, not the way another person claims to be true. One must never take someone else's word for it when it comes to your soul's salvation. It doesn't matter how much we love them, how much we respect them. If it cannot be supported with Scripture, it must be ignored. That makes it not a Bible fact. We deal in facts Everyone better deal in facts, right? Here's an example. Most denominational leaders who compass sea and land to make one proselyte, Matthew 23, 15, will extol the virtues of their particular denomination. I don't know a single one that won't. That's the purpose, right? That's why they do what they do. However, as soon as a prospect joins their particular denomination... They just as fervently declare one church is good as another. Now, brethren, is there a contradiction there? There must be, right? It makes no difference which church you join. How many times have you heard that? Because the church is non-essential. It has to be non-essential if one church is as good as another and you can go to heaven without being in it. Isn't that the message? Isn't that right? That's the message. If that's the statement, one church is as good as another, then the church isn't necessary. It hasn't been that long ago that the current Pope of the Catholic denomination 
fellowshiped with the leader of Iran. He's a Muslim. He's a radical Muslim. He extended the hand of fellowship. Have you ever heard the statement, we're all going to heaven, we're just taking different roads? That's exactly an example of that. We're all going to heaven, we're just taking different roads. One claims to be a Christian, the other one is a Muslim. That is such a contradiction, it's hard to even say it in the same sentence. The difference between denominations and the New Testament church, the New Testament church understands the church is absolutely necessary. It's necessary because Christ taught that and the apostles believed it. Most will agree that Jesus purchased His one church with His own blood, Acts 20.28, and that He gave Himself for it, Ephesians 5.25. Does that make the church necessary? Absolutely. makes it necessary. But then they imply that He bought a gold brick. You know what a gold brick is? It's something that looks valuable, but it isn't valuable. They imply that it's a white elephant. Have you ever heard of a white elephant? It originated in the Orient. A monarch in the Orient uh, would give someone a white elephant. A white elephant was something that was extremely uh, expensive and valuable. But it was a two-edged sword because you couldn't work one. It was against the law. And it was a great honor to have been given a white elephant because now you have the favor of the king. But you can't work it. You can't make money off of it. But it was expensive to keep it. So now you have a white elephant. Not worth anything to you. But it was a great honor to have it. It was going to cost you all your money to keep it. Is that what the church is? A white elephant? Is the church a gold brick? We believe the fact the church being the most precious institution the world has ever known. Because Jesus Christ gave His very life for it. It is the membership who makes up the church. Anyone can become a member of the church for which Christ died. That organization will be in heaven one day. That's what Jesus said. One church is not as good as another. One must be a member of the church that we read about in the New Testament. We need to figure out what that church is and how we become members of that church. Because Christ bought that church with His own blood. It's precious. It's priceless. And we need to be able to differentiate it from any other counterfeit organization in the world. Paul said He is the Savior of the body, the church. Ephesians 5.23, Colossians 1.18. The New Testament church will believe the facts Jesus taught concerning the church, and this is another fact the church believes. It will hold dear that form of godliness of which Paul spoke to Timothy. Denominations hold to a form of godliness foreign to the New Testament. I know of very few, if any, prominent denominations that accept one that will accept one into its ranks without some form of baptism. They demand it. But they will send their young men and women to various seminaries to be able to prove that Jesus did not mean 
Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God, John 3, 5. Or he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned, Mark 16, 16. Now we have a contradiction. He did mean that. He meant that wholeheartedly. Denominations are vigilant in the distance that they place between themselves and the words that Peter spoke and preached on Pentecost. He said, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Christ, for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. They want to distance themselves from the words that he later spoke when he said, The like figure wherein to even baptism doth also now save us, not to put any away the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, 1 Peter three twenty one. I think most agree with the Holy Spirit on the fact of faith being necessary for salvation, Hebrews eleven six. The fact that repentance is required by God, Acts 17.30. The fact that confession is mandatory, Romans 10.10. Most will agree with all of those things, but then they will ignore His outright teaching on the final step into salvation. When Paul said with the mouth confession is made unto salvation requires that another step is necessary. That's another thing every person needs to know about the church Jesus built. And a very big difference between the church we read about in the New Testament and the other 45,000 churches that are in existence in the denominational world. When we introduce people to the Lord's church, it isn't enough to point to the fact of our loving Jesus the Father in each other. We have to do more than that. We cannot simply state that we want our members to be better husbands, better wives, better children, better friends, and followers of God. We have to be able to differentiate between the church that Christ built, the one He told Peter He was going to build, and the denominations of the world. That is mandatory. And we must not be ashamed of those facts. Christ wasn't ashamed of those facts. Peter was not ashamed of those facts. And none of the rest of the apostles were ashamed of those facts. Those Christians who were being uh, persecuted in Acts chapter 8 were not ashamed of those facts as they went everywhere preaching the word. Acts chapter 8 verse 4. We can only interest others in Christ's church by demonstrating the differences between it and all the others. Paul commanded those in Corinth, Be ye followers of me, even as I am also followers of Christ. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 1. Here are a few things every person needs to know about the church Jesus built. The church of Christ will bear the cross of Jesus. It will boast of the sacrifice of the cross and it believes the facts of God. The church Jesus built is not a denomination. It has no earthly headquarters. It has no structure above the local congregation. The church Jesus built is non-denominational, pre-denominational, and anti-denominational. That means Christ's church does not believe in nor does it support 
the religious divisions that exist in the world today. But we do support what the Bible supports. We are against what the Bible is against. Paul clearly stated, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. If you have need to answer the Lord's invitation this day, whether it is through initial obedience to the plan of salvation of which we spoke, or in coming back through repentance and confession and prayer, let that be known as we stand and as we sing.